This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. We are on the air every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Of course, you can always listen to the show at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall, which is where you can also access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, president of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. I am so honored today to welcome to the show Ms. Barbara Paz Cornejo. Ms. Cornejo is a, a, quote, champion for children, and I know so many who would agree with that. Her official title is Vice Principal of the Maya Angelou Academy at the New Beginnings Youth Development Center. New Beginnings is a secure residential treatment facility for young men in Washington, D.C., Ms. Cornejo is also an international speaker, poet, performer, community activist, and advocate. She's the daughter of Chilean political exiles and has served with the Children's Defense Fund's Freedom Schools for many years. I could go on and on and on forever about her, but I'll stop there so that we can actually hear from her. Welcome to the show, Barbara. Thank you so much for being on Know It All. Thank you so much, Allison. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. So I I wonder first if you would just talk about New Beginnings and describe what it is and the children who come through there. Sure. Uh, New Beginnings Youth Development Facility um, is a center where D.C.'s adjudicated youth are committed to, uh, based on uh, whatever programming or whatever opportunities they feel the judge feels is pertinent to the, the young person. Students, once they arrive at New Beginnings, participate in the model, the DC model program um, that consists of a six-tier level program. And the six-program um, level consists of rehabilitative um, steps the student must uh, accomplish while they're at New Beginnings and demonstrating key social skills, demonstrating growth, advocacy, uh, peer support, and resiliency. And as students master these skills every 30 days, they can petition for the next level, which is kind of a step on their way home. Um, What I do there at the facility as a vice principal is I supervise all the teachers, the curriculum development, and ensure that we're meeting the needs of each individual student. Uh, We have a total population of 60 scholars, and our scholars range in reading abilities from third grade all the way to above secondary, which makes it a very challenging educational environment because Mm -hmm. um, within a classroom, although we have a two teacher to ten scholar ratio, uh, teachers are charged with several layers of differentiation, Um, meeting the scholar where they are academically, having serious conversation about their reading skills, um, their academic deficiencies, and what we need to do to meet those needs uh, so they can be successful when they return to the community. Um, In addition, there's heavy social skills programming that happens 
on the ground, both on the therapeutic side, which is on the DYRS, the Department of Youth Rehabilitative Services side, and also on the academy side. Um, we use the values of RISE um, by our poet, Dr. Maya Angelou, um, Still I Rise. The acronym stands for Respect, Responsibility, Integrity, Safety, Self-Determination, and Empathy. And these are the skills that we hope to instill in our young people when they're with us. Um, but it's a very short amount of time to address significant issues that really have nothing to do with anything in our facility but that are coming um, from the community, right? So access to quality schools, access to quality health care, um, and we could talk about poverty and other issues that really help our scholars walk through our front doors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And speaking of that, um, this is when we're talking about juveniles, we're, we're talking about um, them being adjudicated rather than found guilty. Um, so it, it's a, a terminology difference because juveniles are given um, technically more leeway under the law, um, and we want to make sure technically, again, under the law, that we are treating them like children who are still going through social development and uh, neurological development and emotional development and who uh, haven't matured to adulthood just yet, right? Exactly. I'm precisely right. Um, and for that, we need to have a very much, uh, it takes a village to raise a child mentality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did you, how is it that you ended up where you are? How are you now working at New Beginnings at the Maya Angelou Academy? My story is quite fascinating, Allison, and I'll try to be brief. Um, but I want to share with the audience um, how fascinating life can be and how if we look at our failure as success and we love our failure at any moment that life becomes a challenge, an opportunity and a new door opens up, and that's exactly what's happened at so many different points in my life. So 19, I'm trying to find different methods to stay in college at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, and I'm pretty much given three options, either to marry someone who has in-state tuition, have a baby, or drop mm -hmm. out of school. Mm -hmm. So at 19, at 20, I'm faced with these really tough decisions and have no family in the country, as all my family is in Chile at the time and decide to drop out of school and to find employment within the state of Illinois. It was at that point that I encountered Vanessa Gibson, um, who was working for the Illinois State Board of Education and the Urban League of Central Illinois. And she was running an education program, happened to need a program coordinator that was bilingual. I took the position, at the same time received a ESL teaching assistant position in a middle school working with immigrant youth who had experienced the same life I had, but in reverse. Mm. And so I found myself in this intersection of life, leaving what I had originally come to study, which was biochemistry, to become a doctor, and began this pathway to uh, becoming a youth advocate, a youth development specialist, and um, somebody who was familiar with wraparound programming as my foundation was in Illinois, PBIS, and all the models and systems that are um, in practice there. And in 2007, I finally finished my degree, my undergraduate degree. I went back to school. I wanted to be true to what I was doing with my youth, especially in the Children's Defense Fund Freedom School program, which is based on literacy. So my focus and passion had always been young black children or Latino children, children of color who had had challenges in their life and opportunities that had really moved them in a way that was maybe challenging to stay academically, behaviorally, and socially sound. 
And I found myself at a school in Washington, D.C., and I was unhappy with administration at the time. And so I enrolled at the University of uh, Howard University to take um, a master's program in educational administration and policy. And it was at that time that I was unemployed, I was looking for work, and one of my um, actually classmates told me about the position at the Maya Angelou Academy. Actually, the Maya Angelou Academy, um, excuse me, the charter school. And that was the Evans High School campus. I applied for a position, ended up becoming a social studies teacher, worked there for three years, um, became an academy lead, the, the social studies department chair, the cheerleading coach, the bus driver. I did whatever <laughs> and anything that I could in my role <laughs> to help the young people. So anything that they wanted, I was there to make their reality, their dreams come true. Um, but teaching them the skills that have been imparted to me all throughout my life, and my life in Chile is a very different story. One day my book will hopefully come out sometime this year, um, and I can share that. But um, I took some time off after teaching, um, just went to work as a server at the Bus Boys and Poets on 5th and K. Um, so mm -hmm. shout out to all my team. And um, I learned a lot about people and how to um, understand and how to anticipate their needs without them even having to say them to me. And so that kind of put me in the perfect position for this opportunity that um, I received a phone call from the executive director of the Sea Forever Foundation uh, at the time, Dr. Lucretia Murphy, and she you know, just let me know that there was a position available and they were hoping I would consider it. Um, and at the time, it was for the dean of academics position, which is a position I held last year at the academy. And in that role, I was predominantly focused on um, backwards planning, curriculum, you know, supporting this instructional team, and um, just doing the best that we could to provide one-on-one um, -on -one or small group setting uh, learning environments. And this year I became the vice principal. So that's in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me about your experiences, your day-to-day your -day life there at New Beginnings. What is that like for you? Every day in New Beginnings is a new day. <laughs> and we say that and we ask all of our staff to feel this way. And so whatever happened the day before, whatever a student may have said, a scholar may have not said, um, regardless of how we felt personally, we ask all of our staff and all of our team members to leave that at the door and to come in with a refreshed, reinvigorated, and the same high expectations we had the day before of our young people. Um, so we start our day at the academy at 7.30. All of our teachers arrive, our special education case managers, scholar advocates, and um, we get ready for our day. Our first set of scholars, we have kind of um, to support um, the entire facility, we do uh, a differentiated schedule. So some of our scholars start their day at 8 and the others start their day at 9.10. We have 70-minute block um, academic planning. Um, so all of our classes are 70 minutes long. We have all of the core curriculum classes. Uh, scholars also have elective classes. We have technology, transitions, workforce development, artisanship, and mindful health studies, in addition to Spanish one we just integrated this year. Um, we also have a GD program. So a GD scholars day may be very different, but on average the day starts academically about 8 a.m. and ends around 3 p.m. Um, and that includes, of course, Jim. Um, we have an English and a math seminar to address the academic gaps in our scholars' learning. Um, or if a scholar is more advanced than some of our other students, this is when we get to challenge them and really um, increase the rigor for them so that they can be at and above their own grade level. Mm -hmm. So um, 
We have a lot going on. Today, for example, was a very unique day. We had a half day of school and we had an awards assembly, which we celebrate at the end of every academic unit. And our scholars host the awards assembly. Our scholars celebrate themselves and they celebrate each other. And um, this is how we really not only elevate education and literacy, but also this idea of community that we create um, and a sense of belonging that we forge at the Academy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, this show, we're talking about educating incarcerated youth, but I am sure the strategies that you employ there at New Beginnings are applicable for students in whether they're, they are detained or not. So will you talk about, share some of the best practices that you utilize for educating the, the scholars there at New Beginnings? Sure. Well, I think the, in terms of best practices, the first thing to always keep in mind is everything should be student-centered, from the curriculum to the programming uh, to any of the intended outcomes should be focused on student outcomes. And if that is what's being implemented and we're utilizing a curriculum that is based on outcomes, so we utilize Understanding by Design by Grant Wiggins, um, and we utilize backwards planning also to create very short academic units where a scholar can transfer these small credits of a quarter, so actually it's really a month, and two months would make a quarter, four months would make a semester if that makes sense in terms of our academic terms. Um, mm-hmm. They can transfer those credits and recover credits while they're at the Mayandu Academy prior to transitioning back to their neighborhood school or whatever their best academic placement um, is defined for them. Um, So establishing relationships is absolutely key. It's critical for every single person who works within any facility to have strong relationships with the young person and to establish trust. Um, Because a lot of our scholars come to our facility um, with a lack of trust, with a disregard to authority, and... um, a sense of understanding is very key to working within a juvenile detention facility. Collaborative teaming, it's so critical to have both community partners and partners within the juvenile detention um, just circuit to support each other, to share best practices. Uh, that is in itself a best practice, and I think we don't see enough of that. And we're starting to get to that point now with um, the support of um, the Center for Educate, you know, um, educational excellence in alternative settings. So they're doing a lot to help um, facilities across the country um, and schools within to really serve the needs of the young people. Um, We utilize the Boys Town model as it relates to social skills building, and I think that is a phenomenal program if utilized and trained in accordingly. Um, Restorative justice is another area that is a best practice, and anybody in all schools should be implementing this because when a student and a teacher or a student and an administrator have a conflict, we so often run from the conflict and tell the young person what to do, what we expect, without ever giving them an opportunity to share their own voice. And Mm -hmm. what that does over time is it creates a resentment. It creates a closing off to adults and to authority that um, really hinders their future success. And so it's so important, again, to establish that, those, those trusting relationships and as an adult to be consistent, to say what you mean and do what you say. Um, we so often, you know, tell a young person not to do something and then turn around and do it ourselves, and they witness that and see the double standard, and they learn very quickly to distrust adults. 
So we ask our adults who work in our facility to be resilient. We have to have support groups for each other. We have to know how to read each other's energy and say, you know what, I think you need a little mental health break. Go outside, you know, take a little walk. I'm coming, I'm stepping in the classroom for you. And this is what I often find myself doing, um, supporting my teachers, stepping in the classroom as needed. If somebody is out or they're feeling guilty about going to the doctor, I encourage my staff. I need you to be healthy. We need you to be 100% because this work takes a lot, you know, out of us. And we need to create safe forums where teachers can share their concerns. And we have a very collective approach to any young person who may be of a concern academically or socially, behaviorally, and the young person sits at the table with us. So we make a plan with the young person's input because that's who we're serving. And so they have to be at the table anytime we talk about them. So I think so often in regular schools, disciplinary decisions are made and the student is not sitting at the table. They're not even allowed an opportunity to speak. And that's where we have the school push-out effects that we see in practice today. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, speaking of that, school push-out, school-to-prison pipeline, there are different, um, there is different terminology for what is happening primarily to black and Latino children. And, uh, you know, the, the recent civil rights data collection that was released from the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education that came out uh, just a few weeks ago and the joint discipline guidance that came out from the Department of Education and Department of Justice that set forth schools' legal obligations to to eliminate and prevent racial discrimination in student discipline, you know, shows that there is a, a national movement and that is being reflected in the federal policy that's coming out around student discipline. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? And, and uh, you know, a lot of these policies that are coming out are based on racial equity and the requirement for racial equity in schools. How does that play in what you do on a daily basis at, at New Beginning? Well, um, first, I want to say that I applaud the government and I applaud the White House for issuing the guidance release because it um, it gives an, a certain authority to the literature that is embedded and that several um, authors and participants of the research that is being disseminated in the guidance release um, have been saying for several years, right? So the problem is not new. The solutions are not new. Um, what is new is that the government is having a very strong voice in it, in addition to several other key organizations that are collecting critical data so that we can see in real numbers what is going on in some of our school districts. Um, mm -hmm. And it's important that school districts are releasing report cards and that are sharing their actual data, disaggregated by race, disaggregated by gender, and also by special education. Because the students who walk through my door in New Beginnings are not only African American, they are also special education students. And so mm -hmm. at some point the system is pushing out both sets of students, students of mm -hmm. color and students of special needs. So we have to address what is going on in the schools, and we have a legal obligation to educate all children, regardless mm -hmm. of ability, disability, color, to anything. Our job is to educate all of children. And so um, I applaud the efforts, and the national movement is reflected around um, because you have campaigns of dignities in schools nationwide now. Before it started, it was a very small collective of individuals, and they're coming to the table, and the young people are sitting in the White House events. You know, they're sitting in the Department of Education building. 
um, opportunities that are always going to mark this young person who then returns to their home community and becomes a social advocate, an advocate for change, a change agent. So um, the issue of racial equity is, is serious, and we need to talk about what is happening in Washington, D.C. We need to talk about gentrification. We need to talk about the rezoning of schools. We need to talk about the influx of charter schools who may have qualified or maybe not the best qualified administrative or teaching team. Um, I happen to be, you know, with my own experiences within the different school system, I've seen a lot of things. So we really just need to zoom out for a second and remember that this is a cradle-to-prison pipeline that must be dismantled if we are to have a future as a nation, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to address issues of poverty and racial disparities. We have to talk about a culture of punishment that has been uh, just penetrating the minds of people in this country for as long as we've been glorifying TV shows like Cops and all of these shows that um, CSI or Law and Order. We value more order than we do chaos, but within chaos, that's when we learn. That's when we, those, those life lessons are critical. So we want to have healthy and safe, educated children. We want to you know, create the early intervention that will prevent them and the prevention from even walking to New Beginning Store. But um, there's a lot of capacity building that is needed. And so the guidance release is wonderful, but how do we translate that into community work? How do we translate that into the districts? and serving all children, um, and really supporting teachers to expose themselves to change their thinking about young people, young people of color, young people of special needs, because that's, those are some of the hard conversations we're going to need to have. Mm-hmm. That, that's so great. You know, when you think about how and where we allow chaos, right, and, you know, I think about um, my own children, and you know they are Montessori children, and I remember walking into the Montessori classroom when I first um, you know when we first enrolled our son, who at that time was three, this was um, now almost eight years ago, hard to believe, but we we walked <laughs> into the classroom and it it felt like chaos <laughs> to us. Mm-hmm. but right. you know <laughs> at, at closer inspection, it was organized chaos. The children knew exactly their role and exactly how to to maneuver within that chaos. And part of it was that they, as they were learning how to maneuver within that that the organized chaos that had been very carefully structured by the the teachers in the in the classroom, they were learning about themselves and they were learning from a very holistic way mm-hmm. how to be and not just reading and writing and arithmetic but mm-hmm. learning you know how to interact with their peers and how to take care of the environment and et cetera et cetera et cetera and so just thinking about as a society how and where we allow chaos to be um and and you know i think the the private school setting seems to for you know the the upper echelon of private schools seem to do a really good job of allowing chaos and allowing children to learn within a structured chaotic environment, if that even makes sense, uh, where, where on the, the other hand, we impose strict, rigid order on children in under-resourced communities, and we expect them to be still and be quiet and walk through metal detectors and be under police supervision all day. Um, and only respond when spoken to, and only look straight ahead, not look at one another, not speak to one another, even quiet at at 
um, lunchtime and in the cafeteria. And so when you look at that spectrum and where we impose that rigid order versus allowing that chaos to exist and what comes out of that and the children then who end up in a place like New Beginnings, um, you know, it, it really is devastating. And I just I wonder how you as an educator in a detention facility for youth uh, allow children who maybe have been shoved into this rigid order box, how you then coax them out of that and uh, let them know that you want to allow them the opportunity to exist in some semblance of chaos. Well, of I have chaos. to be honest. Yeah, um, healthy chaos is very healthy. It's um, challenging for some adults even who work um, at our school or teachers who have taught at other schools and are veteran teachers and then come to the Maya Angelou Academy and, whoa, this feels a little different. My traditional practice in the classroom of relating to young people has to be modified for this setting. Um, so to that I would say it's critical to acknowledge the humanity of the young person, to acknowledge that they are a young person. Um, that's key, to let them know that they have needs and we are going to do our best to meet those needs but to not make any promises that we cannot keep um, because then we become a part of the problem, right? Um, mm -hmm. We want to uh, ensure that the scholars understand what the programming is going to look like. We want to set high expectations, offer incentives regularly and consistently. We want to celebrate success. Um, in order to do that, we have to provide um, safe spaces in our classroom. So if we have a smaller ratio in the classroom and we have more adults in there. So in addition to the two teachers that are co-teaching, we have two youth development resource um, officers who are in there who are there for safety and security, but also happen to participate in the lesson, get excited about learning, um, are part of the playwright um, acting out of student plays in the classroom setting. So this community that we ask people to create um, is in the classroom for the love of learning and for the benefit of the young person. We also asked them what they like to do. So recently we had our first annual, it was actually DYRS's first annual um, Black History Month program, um, and Dr. Haley Williams was um, in charge of this program. She did a phenomenal job. We worked together with Academy, um, and the scholars at one point um, were allowed or given permission to you know, beat on the drums. We have a drum set on stage, and they're putting on their traditional bounce beat for go-go. And they mm -hmm. start dancing. And then next thing you know, some of them are coming down from the audience and getting up on stage and joining the, the crew on stage. And you could tell that there's some people who are getting a little nervous in the crowd. But because of the quality of the programming, because of how much fun everyone had celebrating the young people, celebrating their talent at this talent show, um, it was a relaxed environment. And the young people, it was at least 20 or 30 of them. This is, I'm mm. talking about from different residential units, they're co-mixing, and they're mm -hmm. just being young people dancing on the stage. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. are the moments that we just cherish when everyone can just let them be who they are and look at them with different eyes. They're, you know, they're at the CFE. They're in their mind. They're at some place where they used to get to dance and do this um, and not feel that their life was out of their control. So, um, you know, we try to provide other fascinating opportunities, whether it's with art and exposing their artwork. All of the artwork that adorns the Maya Angelou Academy is created by a young scholar, all of it, mm -hmm. um, or a teacher, or their, their quotes. And um, when they do their self-portraits, this, this lesson of having to look at yourself 
and see yourself for how other people see you. You know, the hurt that you see in your own face, the, the judgment, you know, that other people have imposed upon you, and then how you see the cycle, judge people, judge people, hurt people, hurt people. Now, mm-hmm. we do our best to help our scholars understand their own cycles and their own patterns and their behavior. Are we always successful? No. You know, it's a very little amount of time that we have to support these young people. We're talking on average six to nine months, right, mm-hmm. where other schools and districts have had them for years, perhaps, um, or families and community homes, you know, everywhere. So we really just need to look within ourselves and ask ourselves, um, am I in favor of all children's success or just my child? And if the answer is all children or my child, it should be all children because without the success of all children, your child can only be partially successful. So I think we just need to change our our thinking about these young people. Mm -hmm. And it could happen to any young person, but... You you mentioned the short amount of time that you have with your scholars, and uh, you know I think any any program um, like yours in a in a detention facility is going to have the same challenge. How do you make sure that you are you are standardizing essentially what you're doing for the children who come through there, maybe middle of the year or you know at some point during the school year, or who are transitioning in and out of the the facility over the course of one school year? Sure. Well, we have um, at the Academy Behavior Specialist, Samantha Sampour, and she is our Welcome Center Coordinator. So regardless of the timing of the year, we are actually a year-round facility and have summer programming. We have a Freedom School program um, in the summer at our facility that allows um, and provides the scholars credit recovery opportunities for English, math, um, career exposure, and art. But um, she welcomes them. And at any given point throughout the 365 days of the, the school year that we are there, um, not all the days, but close enough, right? We have weekends off and traditional school days and holidays. Um, but it feels like that sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. She uh, welcomes them, sets high expectation, um, lets them know what our framework is, what our mission at the Maya Angelou Academy is, and how we are there to ensure that they fulfill their academic or career potential with the support of a wide circle of caring adults and develop the skills that they need to make responsible decisions and lead rewarding lives. So um, in addition to the Welcome Center, we have student-teacher conferences. We have them throughout the year as needed based on the population of students that we have. So we just recently had one last week that is an opportunity to recalibrate um, any kind of school climate tone, to recenter, um, and also to share with new scholars what our expectations are in, in their classes and an opportunity for them to set goals for themselves, either academically, socially, behaviorally. And um, we have a village approach. So we have our special education case managers that are absolutely critical in addition to our student advocates in obtaining information about a young person and interviewing them and getting to know them, um, knowing who they are, their story through their own lens. Um, we have our guidance counselor that has an absolutely critical mission in and trying to obtain the academic records of young people who may only be with us for a very short amount of time or who mm-hmm. transition in the middle of a school year and a school is busy with DC cast testing and they're not really answering the phone for a, you know, a counselor who is asking for school records. But unfortunately, the young person is now at our facility 
and we want to make the best and the most informed educational decision as well as programming. So we need that information. So um, we have a lot of key players <laughs> at our school that coordinate this and make this magic happen. Um, in addition to our partners at DYRS, you know, that are critical, and you know, working with these partners, in addition to community partners, um, contractors. We have a Saturday enrichment program. We work with several community partners um, to really afford the young people an opportunity to do what they like: music production, you know, get exposed to new things, maybe dance, chess, um, debate, you know, CPR classes. We have students who are learning driver's education now. So really giving them the real tools and skills that are going to ensure their success. Um, and like I said, we do the best that we can with the time we're given. Um, we want to – we wish like, we could have them longer, but at the same time we wish we could help the schools out there in the community more. So yeah. I am yeah. available yeah. for consulting, for any kind of support, and we do it out of love for these young people because their stories are heartbreaking and they're a community failure, their mm -hmm. stories. Um, because there's absolutely no reason um, that you walk down the street and you work with children and you don't greet children, <laughs> that you're mm -hmm. on a bus and children are cursing and no adult is correcting them. Mm -hmm. We all mm -hmm. have a role, and we can all do a small part to make this young person's life better. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, DYRS is the D.C. Department of Youth Rehabilitation Services, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you would talk about, you know, you talked about how you um, it, you you welcome youth and scholars into the program at uh, the Maya Angelou Academy at New Beginnings. Talk about students who leave you and the scholars who have to go back out into the world um, after having all of that tremendous support and, and um, you know, being put back into what may have been in the first place an unhealthy situation for them, whether it's because the the school system isn't working properly the way that it should to support them or um, institutional structures are somehow, you know, in the way of their family's progress, whatever it might be, how do you support your scholars who leave you and, and the schools who receive them? Well, um, our school climate team um, does a phenomenal job of monitoring our students for 120 days post their transition from New Beginnings. So while the students are enrolled, the scholars are at New Beginnings and at the Maya Angelou Academy, they receive on a daily basis what is called participation and respect points. And these points translate to weekly dollar amounts that are saved in uh, an account for each student that based upon um, how well they're programming in the community, how engaged they are in their school placement, how engaged they are in their group home, and are they following the norms and the rules that are set by those that are coordinating the programming. And if they are, our student advocates who make weekly site visits to the schools, to the group homes, to the community placement centers, are checking in on our scholars. And every 30 days, if the scholar is doing what they're supposed to be doing, if these site visits are successful and the monitoring, everything is a go, they receive a portion of that check. And that's, um, in a way, addressing both the potential poverty issues, um, it's incentivizing, it's maintaining um, good habits. I mean, we could look at it from so many different angles. 
But our advocates and our, um, our social worker, our lead advocate, are key in ensuring that the community reintegration is going the way that was planned and agreed upon at the discharge meeting. And if not, of checking in with their caseworker and you know, asking for other adults or, you know, we as the school community even may receive phone calls from scholars who are in distress and may respond, you know, depending on our personal relationships or we check in with each other. Hey, you know, I received a call from so-and-so. Could you possibly check on him or do you have any insight on what may be happening? Um, we have a lot of scholars who stay in touch with us because they find a family here um, and positive adults who maybe really stood by them side, their side during the good days and the bad days. And these young people stay in touch. They send us pictures when they're in college, you know, when they are going to prom and they ask us to come to their basketball games and, you know, share success stories because they're so proud of themselves. And we honor them on bulletin boards and we highlight that and we invite them to come be speakers. And especially the scholars who sometimes return to the community and make a mistake mm-hmm. and may end up incarcerated again or funnel through the system again and wow this is maybe the second or third time I'm seeing you at New Beginnings or maybe I don't see you at New Beginnings but I hear that you're at DC jail now and that Mm -hmm. saddens us Um, Mm -hmm. but these are the young people also that we want to reach out to and we have in the past reached out to and invited them to come and speak at New Beginnings and come and speak at the school and share their story and share where they may have thought that you know what they had all the answers and that the second they got back to the community, as you said, yes, there are similar challenges and there are similar people. And the most important thing that we learn when we're at the Maya Angelou Academy is to support yourself with positive, caring people. Mm-hmm. And um, that sometimes is really hard. That takes a lot of courage to make new friendships. It takes a lot of courage to say no, to walk away, um, to watch your family go hungry, <laughs> to hear your mm-hmm. sibling complain about not having their needs met or a sibling being bullied because of the way they look. And so all you want to do is provide them with something that looks better. Um, we have a lot of that. Um, but again, I think what's, what's key is having those partnerships with schools and, and for schools also in our district to look at these young people as young people, who they are, mm-hmm. and not look at them for the fact that they came from a facility but to welcome them and to reintegrate them without a scarlet letter with just love and unconditional support because we're here to educate all children. And if we're not, then maybe we need some help finding a new profession. Hmm. You know, I read in your bio that you, um, you believe that misbehavior is the product of an unmet need, and I think that's so critical. That is so critical. And um, you mentioned poverty and children growing up in poverty and how that has an impact on um, on their trajectory. And, um, you know, children who experience trauma and who, uh, who live through experiences that uh, adults couldn't withstand, um, who then are expected to go into school and sit still and listen and receive a lesson. Mm-hmm. How does that all, you know, when you think about poverty and trauma, um, what does that, what role does that play in the work that you do? Oh, they both play such a critical role, Allison. Poverty, I mean, 
children who live in poverty, um, according to the Children's Defense Fund, according to so many educators, we all say the same thing. They lag behind their peers critically in terms of their academics, their social skills, and just their understanding of relationships, healthy relationships. Their own personal health, they tend to be less healthy, less healthy emotionally, less healthy intellectually, um, and they're not performing at the level of their peers. Um, They have cumulative challenges depending on how many children are present within the same home, depending on how far or how many buses they need to take to get to school. Well, I, as an adult, have been on foot. And to wait for that W-4 bus to come to Southeast D.C. to take you to Northeast D.C., and if you happen to miss that bus that does not often come on the scheduled time, you are an hour and a half late to school because that bus only comes every 30 minutes. And so the only alternative is to take two train rides in, one into the city in the middle of rush hour, take one all the way, all the way out to the city and walk down to the school. So we're talking about access just to a, a quality education, physical access, quali- you know, educational, social, emotional learning. We need more schools to know and understand social, emotional learning and the five pillars that are critical for the success of any young person, not just the young people that come to my facility. We're talking about self-awareness social awareness, self-control, relationship skills, and responsible decision-making. And so when you have children who have not had positive adults in their life and who have experienced tremendous amounts of both poverty and trauma, they come very distrusting of adults and with several layers of needs that um, have to be unpacked. And you have to be ready and prepared and have trained psychologists and clinicians and counselors available. And we're still building and strengthening that model because the need is so great. So we make sure that we have professional developments that are about trauma-informed care and how to study the entire brain um, and how to truly um, ensure that we're viewing children as holistic beings. So mm-hmm. we have to you know, really inform ourselves about the brain and what happens to the brain in poverty. What happens when the brain is denied critical nutrients and sustenance and water, just water? Our mm-hmm. children, I remember my ninth grade students at the Maya Angelou Public Charter School came to my classroom with a plastic bag full of sugar. Sugar, mm-hmm. I mean, just an Arizona drink and just chips after chips, and they're having this before 9 a.m. This is a community problem. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we have to really you know, address so many areas um, of trauma, you know, from relationship trauma, from the trauma of having one caregiver abandon you or detach. And a lot of the behaviors that we see at our school are attachment issues. You know, Mm -hmm. they're related to uh, uh, attention-seeking behaviors. There's behaviors that you perhaps would have seen a toddler or a young preschooler have corrected by their mother or father or some caring adult in their, in their young life. But instead, these behaviors were never corrected. And they were allowed because they were maybe observed or maybe they were modeled by somebody in the home or in the community or in the school. But there was exposure, more exposure to these types of behaviors and no correction throughout the way that by the time you get to adulthood, you just think, or even teenagehood, you think this is just the way it is. So you see mm-hmm. adolescents exhibiting what is seems like a tantrum-like behavior attack. I want this and I want it now. And I'm mm. going to do X, Y, and Z things because I've seen somebody else do that. 
and get their way, even though I know it's not the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have significant amount of needs and my needs are not being met, I am going to do something that lets you know. And there have been some cases of young people who have let us know, you know what, this might not be the best placement for them. Mm-hmm. We might need to go mm-hmm. somewhere else, you know, where there are more trained clinicians, where there are people who are specialized in trauma-informed care. We're just getting to a place where we are training citywide officials and government officials on trauma-informed care or district officials and school teachers and staff who work with young people. This is, you know, we have to know the language. We have to understand what poverty does to the brain and have realistic but very high expectations. And by realistic, Mm -hmm. I mean we tell our young people, you're reading at a fifth-grade reading level. Let's make a goal. Our goal should be to increase at least by two years during the time that you're here. So by the time you leave here, we should be at at least a seventh grade level. And understand that there's going to be more work to do. And the commitment is yours. And you have to commit to love yourself. And that's what I sing often to a lot of students, (laughs) scholars in the school. All you need is love. All you need Mm -hmm. is self-love. The love that you've been seeking from the caregiver that was never there, you can give it to yourself. The, the affirmation that you were seeking from some peer, you can give to yourself. The skills that you feel you're deficient, you can read about, and you need some support in reading, well, we're going to help you, and we're going to offer the best reading specialist, Ms. Barbara O'Neill and Amanda McKenna are going to be helping you gain those skills. You know, we're going to offer a reading seminar. We're going to do all the things, and we're going to change our school schedule next year if that's what we need to do to create the best program to support vocational programming, to support our GED scholars, to support the interests of students who have careers that perhaps we haven't exposed them to enough. It is our responsibility as adults to continuously mold our programming and our everything, our academy, to meet the needs of these young people. And it is my dearest hope that every educator in this country would just believe the same thing for young people and share them and tell them In a loving way, all you need is to love yourself enough to educate yourself. Because Carter G. Woodson tells us the two types of education you receive, the one that you are given and the one that you seek for yourself. And so we can instill that curiosity in young people that they want to go out and seek more information. We know. Now, emotionally and maturity-wise, they may be younger than we are able to get them academically, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point, they have that aha moment. And it's that aha moment that we just do the work that we do every day with a smile and every day go in there knowing that we're going to win the battle and these are the foot soldiers of the next civil rights movement that this country is waiting for. Because I know those young people in Southeast D.C., Northeast, and everywhere that they come from are fearless because they already got through our doors. Hmm. That is absolutely fantastic. I I wonder if you could in in – a minute. <laughs> Tell us how you partner <laughs> with parents and families, because I, I think that's that's such a crucial piece. And you mentioned that you know it's it's the adults who've got to do this work, right? That we have to be healthy and well enough to support our children and help them to grow. So, how do you partner with with parents and families of of your scholars? Sure. Um, well. On the academy side, we can definitely do more, and we always seek to do more. What we do do right now is we have two Saturday open houses at New Beginnings, and we have a bus that picks up the families and brings them to New Beginnings. Um, So we have that transportation provided. That's not an issue. Um, And we also provide meals, snacks, and an opportunity to celebrate scholar success. 
We also have two open houses um, in Washington, D.C. at the 450 Center uh, on each street, so we can accommodate those families who have working schedules or who may have transportation challenges, and so we do something during the week and both on the weekends, um, as well as disseminating uh, progress reports and you know, um, newsletters. We're in the um, process of hopefully one day having a newspaper. So <laughs> that's my pitch for anyone out there who's listening and wants to support a radio show or a newspaper at New Beginnings. Um, <laughs> we also um, have our DYRS um, parent coordinators and liaisons who work to support and attend these sessions, um, you know, any open house or parent night that we have back to school night. Um, there's critical community, uh, community members, um, and Zinga comes to mind, that do parent-related workshops and um, sessions where parents can come together and talk about some of the shared challenges, some of the shared um, griefs, and talk about solutions or just talk about their own feelings. Um, you have advocates for justice and education that offer parent empowerment workshops and invite families not only to attend sessions but also to be the experts sitting at a table. And I think that's the mindset that is often missing from so many of the local agencies and governmental agencies that are youth and child and family related, is that parents or children are often not sitting at the table talking about mm -hmm. the real issues from their mouth. And we hear researchers and we hear the experts. And, you know, often educators aren't even sitting at the table, to be quite honest mm -hmm. with you. So mm -hmm. I'm happy to be as friendly as I am and have the nice smile that my parents paid for so that I can go <laughs> to, you know, these sessions and network with individuals and say, you know what, I would love to sit at your table and I would absolutely offer all of my services. I'm bilingual, I'm charismatic, you let me know. And I get myself in that door. <laughs> and I get myself at this White House educational, you know, excellence meeting and talking about my brother's keeper. I'm sitting at that table because I know that if I want to inspire these young people to be anything and anyone they want to be, I have to walk that life myself. And although all my staff may not know me in this light, those who know my work and know my heart know that I live the life that I talk about. And so I have mm -hmm. to be that change with them. And it starts with me, everyone. It starts with every educator. It starts with every adult. And it just starts with saying, I commit to helping young people. I commit to serving. I remember Mrs. Edelman's quote that says, service is the rent we pay for living. Mm -hmm. And if we live yeah. on planet Earth, then we owe a service not only to earth, but we owe a service to our young people who are our seed and our everything. And so anything that we can do to inspire that and to provide more family outreach, I think we need to be talking more with the faith-based community, right? We need to be going to the churches and um, challenging ministers who have very large church homes. What are we doing to outreach to the schools? How are we supporting the schools Monday through Friday when the church is closed during the day? You know, what are we doing? Um, and I know there's several churches out there that are doing that. I'm not negating, but I think we know that we could all be doing so much more. Let's talk about the restaurants that throw food away in the evening without mm -hmm. offering it to a school. They may have, like, cold lunches, and the children never see anything warm you know, anything different, and they have the same stale pizza on Friday or a bologna sandwich that looks like it sat in a freezer for a month. Are we aware of what children are eating in public schools? And then we expect them to sit still and to be able to concentrate on the lesson being taught. 
We mm-hmm. need to all wake up and question everything that is and in whose benefit it's serving because it's not children. It is not children. And until it starts affecting those who have the power and the voice, we're going to continue to stay in that light. That's what some think, but I think differently because these boys of new beginnings inspire me every day and their resilience and their ability to get up after every failure and to still show their face. That takes more courage than they understand yet. And I hope one day one of them can just hear how much we love them. And all we want is for them to be successful. That's all. And as every adult and every human being on this planet, we all have a responsibility to each other. And if you're in pain, then I'm in pain, Allison. And I need to address your humanity. And if you're stressed out, you're probably stressed because you know what? You're getting pressure from above. And you're a human being. If I look at you as a human being and I look at the situation and I zoom out, then you know what? I'm not gossiping about you anymore. I'm not talking trash about your organization. I'm not trying to downplay your work. Now I'm uplifting a sister. And as much as we are our brother's keeper, we need to be our sister's keeper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I'm I'm sad. I can't believe that this this hour is almost gone. Uh, we have oh, that was definitely more than a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm, I am totally inspired, and I am on my feet, and I am ready. I'm fine. <laughs> so uh, so I want to say Oh, yes, that's what we chant on those lines. Barbara Cornejo <laughs> is you. the vice principal at the Maya Angelou Academy at New Beginnings. Thank you so much for being here, Barbara. Thank you, Allison, for having me. So, audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about educating incarcerated children. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter, find ABC on Facebook, and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.